If we don't address inequality, the transformation on food will go slower, the transformation of energy will go slower, and the transformation of, of gender equity also is dramatically reduced. So inequality is a key to achieving the other turnarounds and accelerating them. Hello, Vicky Robin here, and welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute, in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, and social artists, people who feel deeply and inspire. For regular What Could Possibly Go Right listeners and viewers, this one is a bit different. First, my studio was my converted sprinter van at midnight. The night before I had attended a concert across the water from where I live, it went so late, I brought my van to camp overnight, booking an 11 a.m. ferry for the next morning. But at 10.30, all ferries were canceled due to gale force winds. I had no computer with me, only my phone. So I called around and a friend invited me to camp by her house and borrow her computer, her Wi-Fi, and her headphones. But I couldn't come in due to a COVID scare. No nice clothes, no makeup, no nothing. No good lighting. <laughs> but 11 p.m. was the one hour my guest had for me. I was not at my best, but it's what I had. Second, our guest, Per Espen Stockness, is co-author of Earth for All, a new book about an elegant model of Earth systems that can help activists, politicians, business leaders, and all people who care pinpoint their strategic next steps for climate stability in a world fraught with social and environmental challenges. One of the authors of Earth for All was one of the original 1972 Club of Rome report authors, the limits to growth, and also Beyond the Limits in 1992. Their original MIT computer model showed the world that business as usual, consumption, production, population growth, extraction, would destabilize our world and would do it just about now. The world, however, stuck its fingers in its figurative ears and carried on. People like me and you, Post-Carbon Institute readers, and hundreds of thousands of others took note and have spent the last 50 years shouting from the rooftops. So into this moment comes Earth for All, the 50-year anniversary of the Club of Rome report, and it has a message. The message is, it's not too late, but each year we may need to make specific significant incremental changes that can add up to planetary stability by 2050. We must work year by year, bit by bit, and we will get there. Crucial to our perilous 11th hour journey are five areas of change, which I asked Per to outline in the beginning of our conversation, and which makes this whole recording a bit longer and also several changes in worldview that I've pulled out for you uh, from what I heard from him saying. So the first worldview shift, Earth for All is a systems perspective on multiple threats to our survival. It's an effort to see how they interact, not to enumerate them in those endless frightening lists that cause our eyes to glaze over, See, our simplistic, binary, either-or, competitive thinking is what is killing us. Even movements for change vie for eyeballs, converts, and funding. The best we can do now is to string these single issues onto something like beads on a string in sort of intersectionality, the recitation of which takes too long for most of us to endure. Pear suggests that from their studies, from their models, working with the models, that extreme inequality is one of the major drivers. Without changing that, most of the rest cannot be changed because those who own the power and money 
cannot hear us. So it's that sort of thing, understanding that even though extreme inequality may not be my issue, it's a crucial issue for the things that I care about to actually change. So the second insight, the second worldview change, is we need to achieve at least a both-and sense of identity. Yes, we are self-interested individuals, but as Pear says, we are also earthlings. Preservation of the commons, be it ecological or social, is as crucial to our well-being as personal health or financial security is to us as individuals. If the commons is sick, we are all sick, and we all need to understand that and act accordingly. Third is letting go of American exceptionalism. I found it so refreshing to hear him say that nations in what I call the two-thirds world, because the third world population is way larger than the first world's, so nations in the two-thirds world have abandoned expectations that help will come from our fracturing country or the global superpowers. They are innovating and building back better for themselves. That is what he sees could possibly go right. Paris Stoknes is a TED global speaker, a psychologist with a PhD in economics, and serves as the director of Center for Sustainability and Energy at the Norwegian Business School in Oslo. An experienced foresight facilitator and academic, he's also a serial entrepreneur, including co-founding clean tech company Gasplas. And he's author of several books, among them Money and Soul, 2009, and the award-winning book, What We Think About When We Try not to think about global warming in 2015. His latest books are Tomorrow's Economy 2021 on MIT Press and Earth for All 2022 with the Club of Rome. Per Espen has served as a member of the Norwegian Parliament and on the EU Commission's Mission Board on Horizon Europe's Climate Change and Societal Adaptation. He's been a central contributor to the Club of Rome's Earth for All project. And now, Per. Welcome, Per Espen, for, to what could possibly go right. Uh, and I am thrilled to have you uh, join me. I, um, I was a very close friend of Danella Meadows. I used to be part of the Balaton group. Uh, so, and I've been tracking... The Club of Rome report. I've been tracking the 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 trends for um, forty years, you know. And uh, as many people trying to do my best to, you know, <laughs> to nudge things in a better direction. And and here we are. And you've you've written uh, with your colleagues Earth for All, which is a a reconsideration of. Not of the of the data of the Club of Rome report, but a reconsideration of our prospects and where we, the systems perspective of where we can nudge things uh, to make a difference. And I think it's important for our audience, since I've been studying your work, that rather than just dive into your personal perspectives, I'd love to have you just give us the brief narrative of what is Earth for all. What are your conclusions? What what you know, what are you seeing that's expressed in that book? So um, anybody, uh, first, thanks for having me, Vicky. Pleasure to be with you and uh, looking forward to diving into this uh, incredibly fascinating area topic with you. Um, so first, anybody who's been following the, the long-term economics and, and uh, planetary boundaries of our Earth knows that we're in a dire place and that the economy is a pathological system that um, no longer creates uh, well-being for people, but more uh, concentrates wealth uh, on a few while trashing a lot of Earth's uh, resources. Hence, um, transformational economics. So this is a book that 
harvests from a number of different thinkers and systems analysts and financial people. What are the most effective ways of intervening in the current system to put it on a another direction? So we could use the phrase transformational economics as an umbrella term. And based on that, we go back to uh, the Limits to Growth report of 1972 and the model that was in there. Uh, it was called World 3. <laughs> and that's exactly 50 years ago now, uh, 1972 to 22. Um, and we've made a new model, uh, building on some of the same principles, but also, of course, the vast accumulation of knowledge and experience and data that is available. Uh, so taking the best from the, everybody who's working hard at transforming economics, then picking up the best from the traditional Club of Rome, the limits to growth, putting this together, both a model and a deep dive analyst uh, network we call the Transformational Economics Commission, and then finally creating a movement. So our project is threefold, um, new modeling, uh, new economic thinking, and new way to connect people that is enabling uh, with advice and um, concretization, uh, which makes it into a plausible um, change, a, a story of how we are capable of turning the economic system around in a way that's attractive and that is plausible. So the vision is um, creating more well-being for most of the world within planetary boundaries before 2050. Mm -hmm. Yes, maybe so. Okay, so let's uh, dive into that a little bit. Um, because when you said your third aspect is to uh, create a movement, and, and, you know, I mean, in fact, you're, you're building on years of movement building, you know, in relationship to this multi-pronged crisis that, you know, climate crisis is just a stand-in at the moment. It's sort of the current freak out, you know, but, but basically it's a complex crisis of interconnected mm -hmm. systems, you know, the planetary boundaries. So uh, I'm interested in what new are you bringing and this is said with the, a warm heart, not, you know, I'm not being, you know, what new are you bringing in terms of movement building that hasn't, isn't already in process? Mm. First, as you mentioned, um, the cr set of crisis we're in um, go across a number of domains. So we're just coming out of the pandemic with that inflation and, and setback in terms of poverty. We have the climate crisis, of course, along with the nature crisis. There is the war going on, and below it all is the inequality crisis. So um, this, in a way, goes this goes some way to answering your question about the movement, because we've for a number of years had the climate movement, and you had the, the, the people who are fighting poverty, and you've had the people fighting for women's rights, uh, and. Accordingly, um, there are people writing reports on just the food sector, on uh, the women, uh, gender equality issue, and of course, uh, endless reports on climate, and then other people writing on energy. Um, so what's been lacking in a way is a fragmentation of uh, the movements, uh, where the original vision from the Dana Meadows and the limits to growth about a systemic approach has somewhat been lost along the way. Uh, so in our thinking, we hope to contribute. We're, we're of course, uh, humble here, and we acknowledge all the incredible work that these movements have done. Uh, but might it not be better that we see how food systems in interconnect with gender system, which interconnect with inequality, and which again, of course, connect with the climate issue. Uh, and when we say interconnect, and these things are related, that's that's kind of nice thing to say. Uh, but what does it mean uh, analytically and practically? Where in those systems do you intervene in order to influence the other systems? Um, I'm bringing along scientists and economists and analysts and not the least systems dynamics thinker and the tradition for Meadows um, has enabled us to make a new model. 
that actually specifies how and how much these systems are interrelated. So how far can you get if you replace fossil energy with renewable energy, but do nothing in terms of poverty or inequality? How far can you get if you fix the food system, but uh, don't address the issues in terms of gender and, and gender equity? Uh, our model enables people to test that. And we're, we're currently working to bring a simulator uh, on web, which would make it easy for anybody to try it. Uh, but we don't really believe in just people sitting around on the computer or iPhone and fiddling with a screen. Uh, we want to provide this as an extended uh, simulator that can be used in citizens' assemblies, in town halls, in labor meetings, in any of the other people working on their movement. How can they test uh, and play with um, not just their own area, whether it's food or, or uh, labor unions or energy, but uh, connect that to global poverty or re regional poverty and inequality. Uh, how much would it help our field if we reduced inequality? Uh, because that would increase uh, the speed by which we could have a transition towards electric mobility. Uh, and if you have increased access to electric energy, how would that impact the food system um, in, in low-income countries, particularly where there is no access to, to let's say, good refrigeration, so the high amounts of food waste, food loss? Uh, so this is the kind of thinking and the, the opportunity we would like to reach out to, to the existing movements with, um, assist them each in their own way in terms of how they want to expand their systems thinking. Um, does that make sense to you, Vicky? Is that something? It totally, no, no, it totally makes sense to me because, mm -hmm. you know, one of the transformations we're going through right now is from linear to systems thinking. Mm. It's like, I almost can feel in this world that there's a pressure, the pressure of the events in this world are pressing us for a breakthrough in precisely what you're talking about, which is the capacity to think in systems rather than in, you know, pet ideas. Mm. So in the absence of systems thinking, you, you get more polarization and you get more populism because then <clears throat> the attractiveness of a easy, linear, one lever change, um, uh, which seems emotionally to address the problems you're in, becomes ever more attractive and more prevalent and, and broader. Um, on the other hand, if we run around speaking about systems all the time, but don't make it uh, specific, you're equally fluffy uh, in terms of holistic, sloppery, uh, whatever. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, so, so, for instance, personally, uh, I felt the challenge when Greta and the kids went out on the streets before the pandemic, millions of people marching, and the banner that kind of collected most people was, uh, we want uh, systems change, not climate change. Um, and that systems change, if you actually went up to those people and said, okay, um, what I, I, exactly what is the system? Um, how is it uh, put together? And what is systems change? Which part of that system do you want to change in which way and how much by when? Uh, you would probably much get blank stares. Uh, of course, you shouldn't expect from a 17-year-old to know the, the world's bio-socio-economic system and how it's been constructed over the last 40, 50 years. That's, 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 it's not reasonable to expect that of people who want systems change. So here comes we then with an attempt to specify exactly what are the main drivers in the system, how are they interconnected, how strong are the relative impacts of one part of the system on the other? And we made that numeric and it's transparent and it's available. Anybody who wants to know how, uh, for instance, the education level impacts uh, the birth rate, uh, if anybody wants to know how much um, social unrest comes out of declining well-being which is mm -hmm. caused by declining inequality or worsening inequality well you find that in the model so you can educate yourself uh, by looking at the, the the way that we learn from dana meadows and others that you need to be explicit on which part of the system connects to what other part and then you can go looking for the levers of change and that's what we did totally. so we ended up with the five main levers of change 
that became key to the giant leap scenario where we do transform the economic system, uh, which is also the core of what we um, would like to share with the different movements five interconnected turnarounds that actually will deliver real systems change uh, in time. Mm. Right. So I'm understanding better what the project is, the movement, mm. you know, what are mm. you trying to move and how you're trying to move it. Um, so now I have another question. Um, I have a lot of them actually. Um, mm. And I don't normally do this. I don't normally do an interview, but I do have a lot of questions. Um, number one, um, yeah, there's, <laughs> you wrote another book, as you well know, called What We Think About When We Try to Not Think About Global Warming, right? Indeed. And you have, um, you know, there's a, there's a layer of this, which is human psychology that is, is sort of very resistant, you know, there's mm. points of resistance, it's psychologically, you know, there's fear of change, there's uh, need for status, there's the fact that we still have, you know, reptilian brains, you know, we have all of this stuff that is psychologically, even if we had the best energy system and the best this and the best that, <laughs> human psychology how do what do you think about that the role of interventions in human psychology that will allow us to open to this um, precise systems mm. uh, strategy? Incredibly uh, spot on question. Um, so I think the rational part of science we're speaking about climate scientists and earth system scientists and uh, also economists have to let go at some point of their idea of uh, the enlightened uh, rational individual uh, which is basic to their theory and how they work um, so in what we call the science of science communication, how, how do you address that reptilian brain with advanced facts, etc.? There is this very clear finding of what we call the uh, information deficit approach, uh, which is the idea that um, I know as a scientist, I'm educated, I have a PhD, I published in leading journals, the people out there, mm -mm, not so much, they're lacking information, they're lacking facts, they're lacking in their rationality. So now I need to tell them what to do, because I have the best facts, I have the best charts, I have the best uncertainty and <laughs> margin calculations, and I have the best, uh, shall we say, long-term projections. So um, what we do know, of course, is that from psychology that this doesn't really work. Uh, it doesn't create engagement. So what we need is to shift from that enlightenment information deficit approach to something that's more realistic in terms of the human brain as being thoroughly social, uh, somewhat lazy. Uh, we, have, we have limited bandwidth. Uh, we need storytelling in order for things to come alive in us. And we need to have uh, frequent feedbacks. If I'm doing some change, I need to hear immediately, yes, yes, yes. I can't wait like 20 <laughs> years before I get feedback from the climate system that now actually the rate of change in the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere has declined by 0.5%. Mm -mm, that doesn't motivate real uh, humans in flesh and blood. So we need to package all that in a way that is brain friendly or body friendly, if you will. And, and that's what I worked on in the book, uh, what we think about when we try not to think about global warming. And it equally applies to the systems thinking, because, you know, you have brainy people out there who have been working on their systems model for 12 years, and they, I know systems, I know what how the system is connected. <laughs> now sit back and I'll tell you how the system really works. Right. And then afterwards, you'll be educated. And now you can go out and be an effective uh, change maker. Uh, again, no, it doesn't work that way. We need a community. We need to have uh, personified um, messages so I can see actually what a human life looks like inside that system. So we need to bring the system alive. Uh, we meet, need to be very specific and make it simple to start to take action. So we can use nudging or other psychological mechanisms that we know appeals to the reptile brain, such as green status or um, envy, for that's sake, um, and then work with those 
the way the human brain is and, and tailor our tools uh, to create engagement and not kill it. That's that's my yeah my previous approach, which is more or less individual. And and this Earth for All is is very much more macro. And now we try to right. to bring these uh, together because. Um, um, we do know that individual action is not sufficient to solve all the uh, crisis we have. We do know we sh- we need, um, uh, so we say, um, community action, collective action, uh, structural change, policy change. In addition, but individual change is the driver that w- that when spread like rings in water, we will have eventually changes in in um, structural. Um, systems as well and policies so to just uh, use one example if nobody in norway or europe had bought a lot of electric cars it would be impossible for the eu to ban fossil engines by 2035 and going specifically to the city of oslo uh, if it hasn't been that electric cars became more and more popular and people liked it and discussed them and talk about them with their uncle and their colleagues uh, in a positive way, it would have been impossible for the politicians to yesterday propose that we will ban fossil cars in Oslo by 2030. Um, now politicians are getting to the point where they can see that if we do this, then people will support us rather than kick us out. Uh, and that's the, that's the kind of systems change we need. Um, individuals and companies start transitioning along the lines we know from earth system science but making it attractive making it fun making it cool acceleration and glossy and whatever you want to get your attention from your peers and your neighbors and then eventually you get that confirmation from the top down when the politicians say that oh, wow i want to read ride this wave you know i, I want i want to lose that right. now, now i can get votes actually by by doing these things uh so that's our theory of change uh individual change is necessary but not sufficient eventually right. We will need uh, structural policy support from the bottom and businesses um, can help both happen, both by making uh, products and services uh, easily available, but also by lobbying and telling politicians that actually this will increase our competitiveness and our city or our state will be better off if we do it than if we do not do it. So hopefully our turnaround strategies could feed into that. um, So we really get systems change. Yeah, I I do understand that. How are you considering, how are you factoring into your work right now the the tendency toward authoritarianism that's happening in our world? Because, as you said earlier, if you keep on with linear thinking, you get into us-them polarization, you know, projection of, you know, the devil onto um, other people, you know, somebody else is ruining my life. So, what have you, you and your team thought about about that? Uh, I'm not an expert in American politics, but I do know <laughs> enough about it that you're speaking from a position of pain um, with the elections coming up and uh, a 40-year history of increasing inequality and rapidly escalating polarization over the last 20, 25 years. Um, so, yes, we are worried about these things, and particularly uh, we are very worried about the states of the United States, the state of United States. Um, and the key is really that we, I think all movements, whatever your topic you work on, should focus uh, more on the inequality issue. Um, we have ample evidence that inequality is not just correlated with um, social tension, mental health problems, polarization, and uh, even teenage pregnancies and, and violence. Um, so when inequality goes up, so does social problems. Uh, and on our um, Transformational Economics Commission, we have some of the leading researchers in this area, which is uh, Pickett and, and Wilkinson, uh, which have a deep dive out on our website for free that everybody can look like to look look into where with the strength of that causality how inequality causes polarization causes mm. social tension uh, and makes it more and more difficult to um, coordinate and agree on shared solutions so uh, my answer to your question is that uh, with or without social media we need to address rapidly the uh, ever-increasing inequality uh, issue. And um, if we want stable societies, uh, we need inequality to decline towards what we call a Palma ratio of one, um, which seems to be an optimal level. 
uh, it means that the top 10% incomes take no more than the sum of the 40% low, lowest incomes per person. Mm-hmm. So that means that we do accept there is inequality because the, you know, the, the communist idea of something that it should be equal, mm-hmm. exactly equal, would never work. Uh, but on the other hand, if the top 10% take, you know, uh, maybe 10 or seven times what the bottom 40% have, then you don't have a society. Then you have a, a constant state of conflict and maybe even civil war, violence. Uh, and, and that's not good even for the top 10%. So um, US now is in the area of maybe three, uh, Palma ratio of three, which means that uh, the top 10% takes as much as 12 of the bottom 40% on average. Um, so uh, this is not something that can give well-being for uh, a society or uh, most people. So um, they need to get together all the different movements in terms of demanding that the top 10% uh, pay uh, more uh, in terms of from their uh, wealth and income for the majority. And it's not a lot. Uh, we're speaking about since they already have 50, 60% of the, the national incomes, just reallocating a few percent of that uh, in terms of um, funding uh, better jobs, opportunities, retraining, uh, unemployment benefits, whatever for those people who are at the bottom. And then um, also remo- having even more progressive, maybe even a negative tax on uh, low incomes. And then um, working with reimagining um, trade unions and strengthening worker rights. Uh, and finally, um, using something that the US already has, uh, the Alaska Permanent Fund, which mm-hmm. is actually a way to redistribute wealth created from the commons to everybody. Um, so we use the phrase universal basic dividend rather than universal basic income, because it's really, you know, US is the most wealthy country in the world. Uh, there's so much wealth that everybody should have a little share. I'm part of this society. I'm a citizen too. Why don't I get my fair share of the wealth of this country? So building that sense building that sentiment that this is not, you know, um, what you call it? Uh, what's the word they, the, the conservatives use if you... Socialism. Uh, they, they call it socialism. That, okay, socialism, that's one word. But also, um, uh, if you give someone, throw money at people who don't deserve it, it's a special right, word right. for that. Right, right, exactly. But, but you know what I mean. Okay. I do, so, I know what you mean. I, I think they use, they're using socialism, but okay. it'll come to me eventually. Yeah, <laughs> but this is actually a key to uh, having a stable society where there is well-being and less violence and less division and less polarization. And, and this is not wishful thinking. This is deeply grounded science, social science research oh. showing that these things are very powerfully connected. Um, so the combination of more progressive taxation, both on wealth and incomes, combined with strengthening worker rights, along with a universal basic dividend, would enable the U.S., to improve on gender equity, on food systems, on energy systems, and fighting poverty. Um, so these these things are deeply interconnected, and we have, um, as I mentioned, done that explicitly. So if you go and look into the model, you can see how this will actually increase uh, the rate of change in the other systems. So um, the point is that if we don't address inequality, it, uh, the transformation on food will go slower, the transformation of energy will go slower, and the transformation of, of gender equity also uh, is dramatically um, reduced. So inequality is a key to achieving the other turnarounds and accelerating them. Uh, hopefully right. that's a, a, a novel message. Um, it is but- a novel message. Mm. Yeah, it's. I'm. I'm sorry to interrupt. I. I it's. It is. It is. Um, it is novel. It's. It's the thing that. It's. I hate saying it's the elephant in the room because it. It. It disparages elephants, hmm. you know, who are beautiful creatures. But it is really the thing that we refuse to talk about. Hmm. You know, it is the byproduct of the. Um, you know the sort of the the basic meme of especially of North America, which is generating, you know, the sort of forms for the rest of the world in many ways. Um, so I want to. This is this is sort of a personal thing, but I want to dive into the citizen dividend because I um, 
in my own work, mm-hmm. I'm uh, my book, Your Money, Your Life, is is sort of one of the Bibles of a global movement called FIRE, Financial Independence, Retire Early. Mm-hmm. There's many, 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 many people who are trying to get out of the system by um, saving as mm-hmm. much as possible, you know, lowering consumption and saving, and they're not being virtuous, they're buying their freedom. I've talked with people about... Um, you know, what about this, you know, citizen dividend, you know, universal basic income? What would it be like if if everybody had like a, a basic check? You know, you knew a check was coming. You knew you weren't going to starve. You, you know, what would that be like? And it's very hard to get through the mentality of, wait a second, I worked hard for my money and I don't want to give, give any of it away to other people. You know, it's, it's, it's people feel that that's unfair because, you know, they're the workers, and then the other people are going to be the beneficiaries. But then I said, like, what if we connected it with universal service? Like, your mm. universal basic income kicks in after you've done your, you know, 16 months of basic service. And it doesn't have to be military. It could be reforestation. It could be, you know, social welfare. Mm. It could be, you know, it could be any form of service, like, and, and as soon as I say that, everybody loves it. They said, oh, yeah, well, of course. Mm. And if you did it that way, then the people who choose to do the service will get the benefit. And the people who choose to not do the service, you know, people who think, oh, well, I don't need that extra $500 a month, then they don't get it. So it's like, that's part of the psychology part is like getting buy-in for what really must happen to reduce inequality. There's, there's a induced or, you know, in the human psychology, induced or, or felt sense that, wait a second, I, I paid my dues. Mm. And it's like with the, what's happening right now with the um, uh, student loan forgiveness mm-hmm. Because people say, well, wait a second, I took time, I paid off my debt. Why should other people have a benefit? Mm-hmm. So it's like, how, how do we, how do we, how do we get, how do we message this? How do we get it through that everybody, it's like, it's almost like you have to say at some point, just believe me, just believe me, just believe me. We're going to just do this one thing and see how it works. You know, mm. how do we, how do we like turn this corner around this very important and crucial issue of inequality because it really is killing us. Mm. So over to you. Yeah, and it's eating us. Uh, one metaphor I heard about it is, you know, from the 1945 to about 1981, um, the level of inequality was declining in the US. Uh, so the, the top 10% were contributing and the bottom 40% were, were catching up. And it was a time that even Donald Trump refers back to with um, with um, what do you call it nostalgia. Nostalgia. Um, so since then we've had a more like a crocodile jaw. You know, it just keep, it's, it's, it just like, keeps widening, uh, and that is the what's eat, that jaw is what is eating us with the top ten percent and top, particularly the top one and the top zero point one percent is you know right. the, the sharpest tooth at the top. Um, so. You address this deep, um, shall we say, individualistic uh, cultural assumption in the U.S. Uh, that's been that the country was built on freedom, individualism, and the rugged individual. Uh, and people resist um, other people getting UBD because I perceive them as a free rider. I paid my dues. I did my hard work. I sweated. I have deserved it. But th- these guys, and if they're brown <laughs> in the skin, particularly, they don't deserve it. Or if they have strange eyes, whatever, then they're not really one of us that created this great country. So I want that for myself. Um, of course, that's that. that that's a... Um, Trap that is unavoidable as long as you see yourself as an optimistic individual, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if we think about us as earthlings, uh, like this bird here, another earthling, uh, we're both earthlings, we live on this land. Uh, I'm citizen, uh, meaning I belong to this city, I belong to this place. Um, uh, then I would probably be more open for considering that others are earthlings and others are citizens as well, that I, I'm, they are part of the city, I'm part of the city, we're here. So 
if we then look at uh, the, the amount of wealth that is available in the state, in the city, in the country, and we see that um, a lot of the dividend from that wealth goes disproportionately just to a few people, not because they've done their fair dues, not because they worked hard, but simply because they controlled some capital or were able to capture some part of the commons, whether it's real estate or extraction areas or patents. And they have um, got an exclusive right to gather that wealth from that area while the others get zero. Mm-hmm. That, that is the issue. So in terms of uh, patents, yes, patents are important, uh, but they disproportionately um, go to those people who have the financial cap- means by which to make them and defend them and, and get the best lawyers. So it's a way of extracting wealth from a shared set of knowledge that we have been co-creating. Same thing with real estate. Um, those who control the few acres that really um, are in the city attractive areas, uh, a, a, a kind of disproportionate amount of wealth goes to exactly those few individuals. Extraction of coal, go- oil, gas, minerals, whatever. Uh, same thing. So dumping the costs onto society and taking only the profits. Uh, big data, the same thing. We leave lots of big data, which is really something we create together, whether it's social media or electronic traces, whatever. Everything goes to a very few people. Uh, and, and CO2 emissions. So, you know, all these things draw um, their value for being able to take wealth from the commons. Uh, and I think the key here is to see that as a citizen, as an earthling, I have a right to a fair share of that because it's part of the city, it's part of the earth, part of the land on which we all live. Um, And I don't really agree with you that I should have to pay my dues because let's say I am um, disabled or I I was submitted to unfair growing up conditions. Um, I have whatever life I've had. Uh, not all of that is due to what I did. Uh, and I, as, uh, we have um, human basic rights. I think we also have human basic responsibilities, and we should also have a basic uh, human dividend to the shared wealth. And uh, coming from that, if you look at how wealth is extracted from the commons, uh, getting some of that into a citizen's fund, and from that citizen fund, an equal payout to everybody or the eighty percent lowest incomes, that would be a um, clear reversal, a, a true turnaround, mm-hmm. which would then have spin-off effects in terms of uh, gender equity, food and, and energy yeah. transformation. Uh, and again, everything will not happen at once. Uh, and this is some cool things about exponential growth and mathematics that if you do like. Four five percent improvement every year, then by fifteen years you've doubled it, and by thirty years you've quadrupled it. So in thirty years, one generation with a five percent rate of change in these systems, we would have totally transformed the economic system by twenty fifty. So that's possible. That's plausible. It's doable. And the main barrier is that um, we have been stuck in that individualistic uh, thinking uh, that we're separate uh, and we do not have a universal basic right to the wealth uh, upon which society uh, is built. So if we could change that mindset, uh, Mm -hmm. then also um, food, energy and gender issues uh, would benefit immensely. I'm there. (laughs) Count on me. We've explored a lot about your model and your thoughts. And so now I want to like actually go over to what I always ask my guests on this podcast. And you're a global citizen. You're not infected as I am with the, you know, centrality of the of North America and of the United States in the story. It's harder for me to see than it is for you to see because I'm inside this beast. Um, so given all that setup. What do you see emerging in this world? What do you notice on the horizon um, that, you know, bodes well? You know, that what could, well, that says, you know, there is, as things are falling apart, there's things coming together. Where do you see that? What do you see? 
So let's start in a specific place. Um, I see a lot of countries now that have been stuck in uh, destitution and poverty. And countries such as uh, Indonesia, India, Pakistan, Nepal, um, rising up. Uh, they are aware of the challenges. They are getting real about not expecting aid from uh, the, the rich world. Uh, and they're pulling together towards creating resilient economics. Uh, they are, despite poverty, getting tigers and forests back. They are building their own energy systems. They are uh, supporting um, indigenous peoples in forest areas such as Borneo to, to stop palm oil expansion. So um, I see a rising awareness, whether it's Latin America, India or Indonesia, uh, which is goes completely unreported and, and parts of Africa too doing the same kind of rapid transition. Uh, and I see girls getting educated everywhere at rates that we didn't see just a few years ago. Actually, now it's uh, we're very close to one to one. So that as many girls get through education as boys do, I see a declining birth rate coming from that because girls are able to get education and jobs and, and have more power over their own lives. So um, a lot of things are going in the right direction, and not least uh, with Putin's insane war and all the cruelty and violence that goes into it, uh, he has highlighted how incredibly independent we are on um, fossil oil in the hands of the wrong people, fossil resources. So the issue of freedom for energy, freedom of um, movement and freedom of thought has become clearer again. Um, in such a way that people will never go back to that dependency on a dictator's uh, fossil energy. But we have uh, to invest in freedom energy and energy security, uh, which is eminently available now from the new renewable energy technologies at a much lower cost and a much lower price to the planet. And of course, uh, also cleaning up the air we breathe. So we, out of these five interconnected crises, the inequality, the climate, the pandemic, the war and the, the, the nature crisis, um, I see a new system arising where these five turnarounds are accelerating. We didn't take them out of thin air. It's not just our invention. As you said, there are movements working on it there. Uh, we need to see how these converge and how to accelerate that convergence. Uh, if we do so, I think we can do a giant leap, as the scenario we call it. It's not a giant leap that's just like uh, from one year to the next. That will never mm -hmm. happen. But if you look at it over a 30-year period, 5 to 7% rates of change accumulate to a giant leap over a couple of decades. And that's the, the power of long-term thinking. That's the power of systems thinking. Uh, you, if you go to, to, to the, the book, read our scenarios, you can see how these things come together. We are not utopians. We're not socialists. We're not kind of imagining some nirvana. Uh, <laughs> these are actually within the economic system change. And we're just looking at how quickly do you have to pull these levers every year. And then we're there by 2050, um, making it fully... Um, it's not it's not a perfect world. We still have climate change in the second half of the world. We still have inequality, but it is no longer as destructive as it mm -hmm. is uh, in the last couple of years because uh, we're turning the, the the curves. We are um, we see that population uh, is slowly stabilizing and declining, and education levels and the amount of sustainable infrastructure per person is slowly built up over the last uh, or the yeah the decades from 2020 to 2060 um so that world is fully doable uh, we only have to turn up the rate of change uh, to fill uh, what's ahead <laughs> not full gas mm -hmm. ahead uh, yeah and um, we have to get that train going now now is the time and happily the crises are there to to motivate us yeah, I, um, I'm very inspired by what you said, and not in some heady way. I can see the possibility very clearly, and I can also see that sitting inside the United States, it's harder to see what's going on mm. than it is if you sit elsewhere in the world. Uh, mm. We are, um, you know, we're, we have blinders on here because we have gotten soft being in the, the heart of the, you know, the empire, you know. 
<laughs> then, then you don't see as you don't see as much as people who are on the outside of that. Uh, so I really appreciate that perspective, and I, I very much I, my creative juices are going around this idea of um, how do we language the sh the the tipping tipping back the mm -hmm. economic inequality to something that is more equal that is you know how do we create that narrative that people can see the common good that mm. they're going to be the common pot is their pot you know like if we just mm. put if we put things into the common pot then then we can all get a ladle and, and ladle out of the common pot and part of our struggle right now is that is that a lot has been taken out of the common pot and put into you know on silver platters elsewhere so you know, and we can imagine that. We can imagine the common pot. Yeah. Um, right now, the costs are externalized from the companies and put into the social costs. So the, the costs are socialized while the gains are totally, privatized. Totally. So, and, so a lot uh, of times it's like, how do we, you know, I think it's possible to create those narratives without depending on creating class hatred. It's mm. not about class hatred. It's about, isn't it wonderful how beautiful this earth is and how generous and abundant it is? And mm. wouldn't it be wonderful if we all had at least a fair share of it? You know, we don't have to have the same share, but if we had a fair share, then we would all prosper. Wouldn't exactly. that be great? You know, it's there's a way to speak about this. And I think that um, we're so glued to the present moment crises that we've lost we're losing some people are losing the ability to speak in that way mm. about them. i mean there, there would be no value to real estate if i didn't appreciate this city and everybody wanted to be part of it there would be no value to patents if everybody didn't use them there wouldn't be value to social big data if everybody didn't contribute uh, and it, there wouldn't be any value to new technologies like even right. like tesla or 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 iPhones, if the government hadn't put money into R&D. So we should all have a share mm. of the collective effort that we made to coming, making these wonderful things uh, be, be, be real. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what the issue is really about. Yeah, I think we need to regain our, our um, confidence and the beauty of human beings' creativity blended with the natural resources to create well-being. I mean... We could have that story. There's no question that we could have that story rather than the mm. other story. Okay, I really appreciate. Thank you so much for taking time with me. I, uh, I know I've spent a lot of time poking around in all your thoughts, and thank you for your creative responses. Thanks so much for reaching out, Vicky. And it's a true pleasure speaking with you about these issues. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com. <laughs>